0: And 15 minutes later, I'm in a small town that's being decimated because the coal company's moved out and there's no jobs. And there's a lot of fear in that town. And then I work with those people to try to give them hope about cleaning up a local stream and try to get them to buy into the fact that an artist and a scientist coming into their town aren't necessarily a threat, that they can all work together.
1: Hey, welcome to Green Canvas. My name is Toby Carpenter. And this podcast is all about creative individuals helping to tackle the climate and environmental crisis through their work. We'll be talking to a wide range of creative practitioners, from designers working with sustainable materials to artists and photographers exploring global warming. We'll learn more about their work, how they use their skill sets for positive environmental change, and also what tips they have for you to utilize your own creativity and help the world build the sustainable future our planet needs. So stay tuned and I hope you enjoy and find Green Canvas useful. Imagine looking at a dirty, heavily polluted stream, deeply orange from absorbing iron from nearby coal mines, then having the idea and also the skill set to extract the pollution out of the stream and then use it to make a beautiful paint pigment, and in doing so, allow the stream and the wildlife it serves to flourish once again. Well, this is exactly what our first guest, John Sabor, does with his team. John Sabor is an artist and environmentalist who works with scientists to create paint from iron oxide extracted from streams that have been polluted by abandoned coal mines. He's also a professor of art at Ohio University, and has his work in numerous collections around the world, including the Museum of Contemporary Art. And he's been featured in a host of globally known publications, like The New Scientist, The Huffington Post, and Hypoallergic, and he even delivered a TED Talk at the same university I graduated from. So I'm delighted to have him as our first guest, and I hope you enjoy our interview. John, welcome to Green Canvas.
0: It's good to be here, Toby. Thanks for having me on.
1: I wanted to start with your background. What's your journey been like as an artist up until now?
0: So, you know, I'm a person who shouldn't have ended up where I ended up in life. I've been uh, pretty fortunate in a lot of ways, and I've worked really hard to get here. And I've made a tremendous number of mistakes, probably more mistakes than anyone should really be allowed to make and still be alive. Um, (laughs) And in that process, I came to the conclusion that my role on this planet is involved in sustainability, in equality, and that maybe the best tools that I had to do that was through my, not only the art objects that I make, but also through being an artist with an art practice as an engaged member of a global community. And as a part of that, I ended up kind of uh, getting hooked up with this engineering guy, whose name is Guy. And he was working on a project that I was trying to work on, and he asked me to join forces with him, and we did. And now we're in a position where, in the next couple of years, we will have a full scale treatment plant up and running, and we will be cleaning up over a million gallons of pollution from abandoned coal mines every single day. And in that process, we will produce over 6,000 pounds of sustainably harvested iron oxide pigment for the next 600 to 800 years every day
1: so I've got a, I've got a lot of questions about the pigment <laughs> that you've been making and, and the plants and, and the acid mine drainage and all the work that you've been doing in, in these polluted streams in Ohio. But I just wanted to take us back just a second, just for listeners, just to understand why were you attracted to making environmentally focused artwork? And why were you drawn to sustainability as uh, something to commit your life towards?
0: Yeah, it's a good question, Toby. And it actually really occurred kind of in one day, in a way. I'd been an artist for a while. I'd exhibited in different shows in Chicago, in New York, in many other places. But I was very young in my career. And a lot of my political activity, a lot of my efforts to make change in the world was really sort of aggressive. And it was really uh, going out and doing marches and protests and writing letters and that kind of thing. And this is 2003. 2003. Uh, George Bush Jr. was about to go off and decide to invade, you know, Iraq again. Because why not? He has too many oil interests to let that go. And so I wrote a little op-ed piece that was anonymous to a newspaper. And I was like, look, let's just, it was really simple. It was just, let's let's wait. Let's talk to the UN. Let's talk to our allies. Let's see if we really need to go in. And if everybody agrees, we got to go in, we'll go in together, you know. Very simple. But a couple days later, I got a knock at my door and it was my mail carrier. And he said, I got some mail for you, And I was like, cool. And it was box after box filled with hate mail, with letters, cards, everything attacking me for somehow questioning the president and questioning the invasion of Iraq and all that stuff. And no one gave me their name, of course, and no one you know, gave me a, any contact information so we could have a discussion. It's not what they were interested in. They just wanted to rake me over the coals. And, and they were very evil, uh, death threats, all kinds of stuff. I was just thinking, like, what, you know, what effect am I actually having? What is all this noise that I'm trying to make? What is it really doing? And, you know, the conclusion was that it was doing nothing. It was just making noise. So that's when I began to examine what I was doing and what I was interested in preserving and creating for a future. And that's when you start to look at things very deeply. And you can see that nearly any major issue that we're facing globally that you want to look at, it can be traced back to resources and whether we're equally sharing those resources or we're not. And that's about sustainability. And that was the point when I determined that sustainability was gonna be the cornerstone of what I was gonna work on. And from there, it's a pretty easy jump to start to look at you know, injustice, uh, whether that is economic inequality, whether that is uh, environmental inequality or environmental racism, racism rather, intersectionality, all those things stem from resources and sustainability. And that is the moment when I decided that my actions were going to be about a sustainable future, not just making noise, and that I was going to turn my art practice into something that was going to support that.
1: And what were the first ways you incorporated a sustainable practice or a sustainable philosophy into your artwork? How did that manifest itself?
0: In a lot of different ways. I think early on what I did is I just went back to the landscape and I started painting the landscape again and thinking about different ways in which we should address sustainability and nature in one go. And so for me, that involved a lot of things like um, working with organizations to preserve habitat, um, you know, anti-pollution, other kinds of stuff. But it was more about having that conversation while the work itself could entice a conversation about it. The work in the studio itself, I don't think was um, bent towards a sustainable practice. And one of the things about being a professor of art is, at a university is that the students uh, challenge you all the time, and I really enjoy that. And so some of my students really started challenging me on the fact that I was speaking about all these issues, but you know, what was my actions? What was I doing? And that's when I began to examine my own practice. And so early on, some of the early things were taking available technologies and methods and trying to apply those to the studio practice, right? Um, because we use all kinds of different materials from all kinds of different sources. You know, we have to use light and electricity and water and what we do and transportation and all those things. So <laughs> so one of the earlier things, earliest things rather, that I did was I set up a website now defunct that was called greenworld.org. And this was a website that was dedicated to allowing artists to use a certain rubric online to purchase carbon credits to offset the carbon production from their own art practice. Because that's what I've been doing for my practice since that time, which is was a long time ago. Could have been 2009, I don't even remember. And basically, I worked with carbonfund.org and we created this rubric that applied all these kinds of you know, algorithms to if you're shipping X number of sculptures or paintings or whatever, and are you flying and doing shows. And it was really inexpensive to offset your carbon production and make your art practice carbon neutral. And in that process, you know, I had some fun and, uh, I researched how many times Leonardo da Vinci, you know, transported the Mona Lisa back between France and Italy to finish it and other kinds of things and whether he used draft horses or normal horses and lit by candlelight or whatever else. And, uh, basically you made a, uh, completely, um, <laughs> unverifiable quantitative, uh, analysis of how much carbon production leonardo did to create the mona lisa and then i purchased carbon offset credits to make the mona lisa a carbon neutral painting and then i sent a nice letter to the louvre about how the fact they they own a an awesome carbon neutral painting now and yeah i never heard back from them
1: and um, and so how how do you create an art studio practice? What are some really good ways of or some really good sustainable alternatives to the conventional artists' necessities such as canvases, paints, and so forth?
0: Well, you know, I think it's we're in a situation where we run into the same hurdles that people run into in their in their regular lives, right? So you mentioned canvas. I think that's a good place to start, which is that you know canvas is typically cotton. Canvas is typically not an environmentally friendly product, really intensive in terms of fertilizers, herbicides, pesticides, things like that, not to mention shipping and labor and all that kind of stuff. And it has, a, of course, a very problematic history. So um, a better thing to use would be linen, because linen requires almost no herbicides and pesticides and things. And it's it's a lot... More durable in many ways. So that makes sense, but it's actually a lot more expensive. And there's not a lot of artists out there who have enough money to make exactly the choice they want to make and spend that kind of dollar amount. But if you can, then you can do that. You can go to linen, it's a better choice. You can um, look at the ingredients and the pigments in different paints that you have and choose, say, not to use cadmiums, because even though the majority of it is going to go on a canvas somewhere or an artwork and maybe that will be, I don't know, held out of the environment for a long time, those tubes that are left over are gonna go somewhere. And if you wash your hands or you wash your brushes and everything else, then cadmium's not your friend. Uh, It's gonna get into the environment, it's gonna get into the um, water system, and that's gonna go places. If you're using lumber, if you're developing stretchers, go with a company that's using either cast-offs or they're, they're harvesting it from a sustainable source. Uh, oftentimes, if you can get those made locally and support the local economy, and it comes from land that you know has good stewardship to it, that's a good choice. All these kinds of things, that, and if you just think logically like um, a regular life, things like your water usage or your electricity usage, a lot of places have the option for you to opt into paying your electricity bill in a specific way so that all of your money goes towards renewable energy only. It doesn't go towards coal or fossil fuels there's a lot of little things like that toby that if you stack them all together it's a it's a much better practice than when you're not considering any of them but we should not be under any illusions that they're really sustainable it's you know i'm not running a sustainable practice i'm trying to run a more sustainable practice but sustainable is kind of a black and white issue either it's sustainable or it's not and i think what we're doing is maybe a little bit more eco-friendly maybe um Some things in terms of our choices of who's producing it, we're making some social choices there that are better in terms of supporting, you know, people who ordinarily are exploited to produce these products. And those are better, but that doesn't really, you can't slap a label of sustainable on it. You can be working towards sustainability in your practice, but right now, unless you're, you know, basically just going collecting seeds that come in the wind and planting them somewhere for monarch butterflies to reproduce, if that's your only practice, and you do it in an electric car, and all kinds of other stuff. You can say your art practice is sustainable, but for those of us who are using products, creating products, and selling them anywhere, you know, we're not there yet.
1: It sounds like just the the realities of being human, and any, any <laughs> creative any creative pursuits they will have a to every positive. There's there's always a negative.
0: Well, I want to back that up, Toby, if I can, by just you know, the more I don't want people to feel that that's a reason not to do it, because the more of us that are clamoring for, you know, sustainable products, uh, eco-friendly products, et cetera, there creates a demand for it. That means the prices come down and that means that more artists can actually use those products. And so we as consumers of products and as producers, we have a power to change the minds of those that produce those things for us.
1: I'd like to ask you about your work on acid mine drainage. Which involves you remediating streams polluted by abandoned coal mines? Could you tell us a bit more about this project?
0: Yeah, I think that. Well, what's interesting is you're where are you at, Toby? I'm in London. You're in London. Okay. So London is slightly removed, but you, you know, uh, you know, England is not an epically large country, if I can say so. Um, no, we're pretty pretty small. <laughs> so you could travel. You know, it's. I'm a kind of a I'm a kind of a big footy fan, so. You know, when we hear about these teams, like flying teams down there, we're like, wait, what, you flew? And it's only two hours? We did just drive. You know, it's crazy. Um, so the UK has a huge coal problem, as you know. A long history, very similar to the United States in many ways where, you know, the organization of unions and workers' rights were all around the coal industry. And there's a lot of legacies in the UK, my understanding is, where you also have issues of acid mine drainage and pollution and slag piles, et cetera, gob piles. So around the world... For most of human history, when we mined coal, it was mined in two different ways. Um, one was strip mining. If the coal was close enough to the surface of the ground, they would just you know, take bulldozers or by hand get rid of the soil on top of the coal and then dig the coal out that way. And then typically just throw some dirt back on top and say that's fine. Or another method, and that's also called, called uh, mountaintop removal. There's another method, which is underground coal mining. And in underground coal mining, there's a couple different methods, but essentially um, tunnels are dug underground and they go far enough that typically it reaches the water table. So in order to get out the coal, what you have to do is continually pump water out of the mine while you're mining it underground. And throughout most of the history of coal mining, when that coal was gone, the company just moved on and left it exactly as it was. Uh, holes everywhere, then that water that they kept pumping out just fills up the mine. And then you also have surface water that's going to find its way into that mine as well. Now, in 1972, in the US, there was a Clean Water Act that was passed. And that basically said you had to seal up your coal mines really well, which is, you know, better, but not perfect. So here and elsewhere in the world, all that water leaches into all that rock that was exposed by digging all of these tunnels and pulling out the coal and these mineral surfaces where the coal is you know these have been underground for 300 million years and in our area appalachia there's a tremendous amount of sulfides that are present through um, fool's gold right pyrite and that water leaches the sulfides from this substance and so the water becomes acidic it really create sulfuric acid and that sulfuric acid then goes to work on these exposed rock walls and it leaches all the heavy metals from those rock walls into the water at a very very high concentration and eventually water is going to find a way so at some point that water bursts out of a hole in the ground or in the hillside or something else and it finds its way into the streams and creeks and when it hits those streams and creeks the high acidity Of that sulfuric acid in the water fish cannot live aquatic life cannot live in that environment they need a very narrow range around seven seven point five ph and this this acidity is coming in of you know sometimes at a two or at a four and it's just not sustainable the fish cannot live there in addition to that all those heavy metals which in our area is predominantly iron oxide that iron oxide you know once it hits air um, it becomes a crystal an iron crystal called oxyhydroxide. And then that actually is heavy. So it coats the bottom of the streams, the sides of the streams, anything that's there in a heavy, heavy blanket of this iron. So that becomes a habitat that aquatic creatures really cannot live in as well. And so when this acid mine drainage hits streams, it literally kills nearly every bit of aquatic life that's in it. And even if it's only like affecting a few miles of the stream and eventually there's enough rainwater to dilute it towards the end of it, that stream that's affected cuts off other bodies of water. So you can't have a really robust ecosystem for aquatic life. Instead, they're just isolating these small pockets and that's not healthy for them. And so that is acid mine drainage. And it's, you know, in Ohio, we have over 1300 miles of streams that have been killed by acid mine drainage. And that's just in Ohio. So that's the problem that we're dealing with.
1: And so you have this acid mine drainage problem. Could you tell us a bit about the project you've been working on and how it's been rectifying the problem?
0: Yeah. So the thing is, it's orange, like the iron that we get out is is really, really orange. It's in between a curatite and a hematite state. And so I'm not an Ohio guy. I'm a military kid. I'm from everywhere. I was born in the UK. I was born up in St. Ives. And so for me, the first time I saw this, I'm like, what is all this orange crap in this stream? And um, they were telling me that it was iron oxide. And being a painter, you know, I know that iron oxide is a pigment that's been used since the earliest cave paintings until now. So I took some with me and I wanted to make paints out of it. And I did a really terrible job <laughs> and, and nothing good came of it, Toby. And so um, I was like, wow. I guess this isn't going to be a paint. I thought I could make paints out of this and maybe that would be something that could help, you know, bring attention to this problem. And just about the time I was failing miserably in my studio at making paints out of it, that's when Professor Guy Riefler reached out to me through one of his graduate students and said, You know, you're an artist. Can you help us develop a good pigment out of this acid mine drainage solution? I was like, But funny you should ask. It's <laughs> not <Sounds laughs> like destiny. It-, it was destiny. It was got funny. <laughs> and i was like yeah and so we began working together and you know guy Riefler, it's you know he's the environmental engineer the civic engineer he understands the deep chemistry of it how water treatment processes work and everything else and my job as the artist is to come in and go like wow that is not a pigment that anybody wants to buy that is terrible quality we we need to go back and rethink this aspect and this aspect and we and it was just years of of complete failure uh, years of like wow we just we made another mud pie Great, you know, (laughs) nothing could come out of it. But eventually we started getting a little better and a little better and a little better. And once we had something that I thought was a pigment that could be of the highest artist quality, that's when I began approaching paint companies to work with us to see if it could be a commercial product. And so we began partnering with Gamblin' Artist Colors, which produces some very fine oil paints out in Oregon, in Portland. And they really were great. They started testing our pigments in their labs to make sure they were non-toxic, to make sure they were safe. They did light-fast testing, um, all kinds of things, which was awesome. Then they'd come back to us with information. We'd tweak it further, et cetera. So the great thing is, is that now we're in a position where just this last year, right when COVID hit, right when we got shut down for the pandemic, the Gamblin paint company actually released a limited edition of our acid mine drainage pigments in three different color ranges of oil paints in a pack, and they called it Reclaimed Earth Colors, which is cool. And so it's out in the market now, and they're, we harvested enough pigment and processed it that they're able to produce, I think, 7,500 sets, and they're going like hotcakes, which is great. And they are donating back to our project uh, 20% of the proceeds from the sale of that. The thing about that is that during that process, while we were doing that, the attention from the art shows I was having. The attention from the media that Gamblin was having by releasing these paints brought a tremendous number of new partnerships for us. And in that process, we began working really closely with the Ohio Department of Natural Resources, and together we were able to secure $3.5 million in federal funding to go ahead and take our little little lab project and make it into a full-scale treatment plant.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. Congratulations for that, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. So is this a is this a constant project that you're continually working on and takes up a large part of your day every single day?
0: I wouldn't say it takes up a large part of my day every single day. It takes a small part of my day every single day. and then we periodically every couple of months, we reach some kind of milestone where we have to either produce a lot of pigment or we're working on a new aspect of the the plant that requires you know a heavy intensity. And typically at that point is when I'll bring a student team on board and Professor Riefler will bring engineering students on board. So we've got these art and engineering student teams that work together to solve these issues or to produce what we need. And those are very intensive periods of time.
1: And so you've also been making paintings alongside this project, a series called Chroma based around these pigments. Could you tell us a bit about these paintings?
0: So for most of my career, I was a a very, very hyper-realistic painter. Um, painting things that were, you know, either figures and still lifes and landscapes and things that were very, very detailed. And I was trying to really bridge this sustainability idea. You know, I had been incorporating these more sustainable practices in my studio and I wanted the art to have a, a better conversation with that. And so I was actually trying to paint these, this version of microscopic images of tree rings and I was just terrible. I just, you know every all my skills had abandoned me and i just it was going very badly so i kept trying all different mediums and everything and it was going awful and then i kind of had a you know a little bit of a teenage angst moment even though i was not a teen anymore in the studio and uh so i knocked over a bunch of stuff and it all spilled into a big thing and i I walked out and i just didn't come back to the studio for a couple weeks and when i came back in This giant puddle had dried, and it was exactly what I'd been trying to paint. And so I realized that I had to take this kind of control issue um, and and make that a battle where nature got to have its say, and I could have a conversation with it. And that's when the Chroma series was born. So it's this constant back and forth, this fight between me trying to create this circle that maybe references, say, the BP oil spill, aquatic life in the Gulf, and that kind of thing, and as each layer dries, it has its own idea of what it wants to say about it. And then I do another layer and then tell it like, well, what about what if we could say this? And then it it takes it and gets a little bit of its own idea. And so what happened in the end is kind of funny because I never thought I would be an abstract painter, is that these leave enough of a space that that circle can be microscopic. It can be You know, like uh, the Hubble Space Telescope taking, you know, billions of light years worth of stuff and cramming it into one circle. So it has this kind of space of macro-micro. It can do what it wants, depending on what the viewer is feeling when they interpret it. And what happens there, which is fascinating to me, is that I have ideas when I'm painting it. And when it's finished, I'm like, yeah, this does this and I like this and it speaks to me in this way. And in the shows, people will come up and look at the work and everyone has a completely personal take on what it means to them. And because that circle provides this shift in scale that can adapt to the viewer's psychology and experience, their psychogeography, basically it triggers in them usually a deeply buried experience with nature in some way. And so then they approach me from the show and they say, that reminds me of the time this happened or that reminds me about my love of this, that, and the other. And what that's provided for me is a really like, non-aggressive way to enter a conversation about sustainability. And that, because the person brings it from their own experience and it's authentic, that actually foments a conversation where I can really get them to take a next step to take that conversation to someone else and we can have um, a much broader and a much more honest dialogue about what changes are going to have to happen if we're going to have this sustainable future. And so for me, that's been the greatest joy of this series of paintings.
1: And are there any particular um, responses to these paintings that stick out to you in exhibitions or pe- any people that have viewed these, uh, these works in front of you? Well,
0: gosh, um, <laughs> the crazy thing that happens too is that I think some people have seen the works and then they ask about the paintings and then they i tell them about the process and i tell them about the pigments as well and they put that whole thing together and a couple of times this has inspired people to go and start their own um environmentally or sustainably focused uh, activist organizations and practices and that's kind of really surprising to me because i'm just you know just a dork in my studio (laughs) making paintings (laughs) just a guy in the midwest in appalachia and for people to say, no, the, the what you were doing and how you told that story through your art, I felt that I needed to start a new organization. I felt that I needed to do a whole exhibition. I felt that I needed to write something about this. The fact that that is something that would happen is still, still mind-blowing to me. And I think those moments are the ones that stick out the most.
1: And so I've been scanning your website, and you've also got other works called Black Mirror and Silver Mirror. What are these pieces and what inspired them? <laughs> well,
0: so, you know, I, um, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty lucky. I, I just make whatever I want. Uh, and a lot of people, have, the Chroma series has gotten a lot of media attention. And so a lot of uh, people, when they request exhibitions, will request that, you know, can they have some from the Chroma series? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm continuing to make these things. But as I encounter more and more people around the world and I encounter different situations, you know, like the silver mirror and black mirror, those are huge pieces and black mirror is coal. And I carved it out of a coal tunnel myself. And then I fractured the coal into pieces and I glued those onto a piece of honeycomb aluminum in a circle. And I did it so that when you, cause coal is beautiful, Toby, it's beautiful. It's like when you see it in person, cause coal is just carbon. And it's just dead trees. It's 300 million years ago, these trees fell over in a swamp and they got buried. And you can see the tree fibers in the coal. And it's really beautiful to me. It's fascinating. And the only reason we have coal is because at that time when those particular trees fell over, we didn't have, I mean, bacteria hadn't evolved to eat them, which is fascinating to me. And so they didn't rot in the same way that trees rot now. So we're not going to make any more coal. It's not going to happen. And then the crazy thing that also occurred to me is is that kind of carbon situation with, you know, fossilized plants, if it's in the right circumstances, that becomes graphite. So it's the same thing as coal, but it's under different pressures and different situation underground. And so Silvermere is actually chunks of graphite that were mined in Sri Lanka, and those are actually put onto a big piece of aluminum and then I used the dust on my fingers from those chunks of graphite to make the whole thing into a silver mirror by hand and having a really close connection with these kind of absolutely magical elements. That's just another aspect of the work that I'm playing with.
1: And um, what do you want people, is there anything that you'd like people to take away when they look at these works?
0: Well, I think that for that, I think, you know, Most of us are just completely removed from our environment anymore. And I think that when you talk about coal, when you talk about energy sources and fossil fuels, for most of us, I expect that that is a very abstract conversation. And I expect that for most people, they've never held a piece of coal in their hands or they've never been into a coal mine or a coal tunnel or anything. And so part of what I'm hoping to do is to bring this to the surface, no pun intended, and have people examine it in a way where they also grasp this kind of real relationship, something physical, something um, material that they can respond with, so that the conversation you can have further about it makes it something that isn't abstracted and easily put into arguments that don't have anything to do with a real touch on these things.
1: And we haven't really touched upon it so far, but I'd like to ask you about your role at Ohio University, where you're a professor of art. How would you describe your role there? And is environmental art and sustainability a part of the curriculum there?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think primarily my job is to ruin young minds. <laughs>
1: um,
0: <laughs> but basically, um, so yeah, most of what I teach now is I teach I, I'm, what I'm able to do anyway in my teaching is to, because of our project with the acid mine drainage and the big plant, you know, we're able to ease more easily get a little funding here and a little funding there. And so what we try to do is we try to bridge the gap between these disciplines. Art and science, I think, over, particularly in the latter half of the 20th century, have done a great job of alienating themselves from the general public and from everyday life. I think there's a lot of people that you know think art is useless and that science is a bunch of elitists who don't care about them and who can make up what they want. And I think that's why you have the kind of populist and, and conspiracy theory-based crap that's going on now. It's not an accident. It's been fomented. It's led to this. So one of the things that we do is we try to, as much as possible every semester, have art students and engineering students come together to work on our project. And there's different aspects of this that happen in different ways. Sometimes we're building a small test facility, so everybody gets to go out there and get shovels and you know, dig holes and pour concrete pads and put things together. Sometimes we go out and we teach them the chemical process of treating this pollution, and then we'll treat large batches of the pollution and come up with pigment, and then we'll do a painting or a mural for a community member, those kinds of things. And I think that bringing that kind of thing together where the alienation doesn't happen and where the disciplines can bridge and where people can feel okay about having a conversation about art, even though they're not artists or be okay with approaching and having a conversation with scientists about scientific issues and research, even though they're not experts in that. If I can do that for my students, then I think we're creating a really engaged and empowered citizenship that's going forward. And for me, that's my main goal out of this.
1: And are there there any environmental artwork or creative projects that have had a significant impact on your outlook and, and the way that you approach your work? Oh
0: man, um, yeah, that's another eight or ten episodes, Toby. But <laughs> but the first one, I think, there's really two that very early on, I think now that I'm had some time to think back, had a really early influence on me. And one was Mel Chin, um, and Mel Chin had this great piece that was uh, in a, a super fun site where he actually worked with scientists to create this kind of chain link fence garden and planted different varieties of plants in there to see which ones would actually detoxify the soil so that was really cool and i was just like man you can do that whoa and then the other person who i continually look back to and was really uh, had a great time looking at her retrospective uh, in new york this last year is uh, agnes dennis and agnes dennis is the artist who took um, south of Battery Park in New York and planted a whole field of wheat and harvested the wheat and made flour and gave that away to um, impoverished communities in New York. An absolutely brilliant, brilliant project. And she did one, I think it was in 2011. I'm probably getting this completely wrong. Let's pretend it's 2011. And she worked and got this entire mountain and worked to make it, I think it was in Finland. I might have that wrong. And she got 11,000 people, I think, to commit to protecting 11,000 trees planted there for 400 years so that you know it's going to be an old growth forest and it'll be preserved by individuals, by families committed to it for the next 400 years. And I think those kinds of uh, art projects that bridge that divide and really cause people to think about what, how are we empowered, whether that's through citizen science like Mel Chin or whether that's through basically deciding as a citizenry that we're going to take over and create a whole new forest um, that'll be preserved. I think those kinds of projects for me, those speak to me a lot. And that's something that I've tried to incorporate our new, our plant, our pilot plant, sorry, our full scale treatment plant that's uh, being built now. Um, We have 48 acres that we purchased through investors and other kinds of things to build this plant on. It's a very large plant. But it turns out we really only need about two thirds of the land to build a plant itself on and all the treatment centers and all that. And with the rest of the land, a portion of it has to be dedicated as a wetland and more specifically what's called a, a mitigation wetland. So it can never be touched again. It has to exist just in this natural state for bird habitat, plant habitat, et cetera. But there's another portion that's left over a little bit. So what I'm doing is I'm working with my partners and my students and we're designing that wetland which is about it's about 11 acres total as a educational climate change sculpture park so it's actually going to have native plants bee habitats pollinator habitats etc it'll obviously be treating also some of the water coming from our plant that might have a little bit of iron left in it and so it will neutralize that it will mitigate that and then we're going to have all these walkways where at the end of a walkway there'll be a sculpture hopefully by a famous artist if someone wants to donate a lot of money to us. And that sculpture has to engage with the climate change because this area will flood seasonally and every year depending on how the weather has changed. And I really like the idea of having um, community members, of having students, K-12, through um, secondary, college, whatever, other people who are building civic projects to think about how we can always take a portion of that project and make it something that is helping us battle climate change. And that is a community owned educational situation.
1: And um, from your experience, what do you think are the best ways of bringing people together for sustainably focused projects?
0: I think that's, um, that's a broad question. I think that, (laughs) so I've been fortunate enough to be invited to give uh, a lot of talks and a lot of workshops and things. And, That's a question I kind of get a lot from people is like, well, what can I do? Like, how can I, you know, become a collaborator in some kind of sustainable project, et cetera? And I think that there's a couple different things. One is that if you have a focus in your life, let's say you're a bird watcher, if you research scientists that are actually into birds, particularly into the birds that you're in and, and whatever they're studying, whether it's the, the healthy the healthiness of the population or how it relates to certain land mass areas or certain locations, et cetera, oftentimes you can actually just approach that scientist, that researcher or that supporter. You can just email them. This is what I've discovered. I, I do it. You just email them and go, hey, love your project. Also, love birds, you know, can I do something to help either promote what you're doing or have a discussion with you and see where you think you're lacking some things that I might be able to put a team together and provide. Very often I find that most of those people are really excited to have that conversation. And then it always turns out that there's something, sometimes it's very small, sometimes it's multi-year project, but there's something where they wish that this would happen or they wish people would perceive their project and understand it and the value of it in a different way. And as creatives, as artists, you know we have this very different way of thinking and seeing the world with this kind of spatial inventiveness and imagination. And so I would trust those instincts that you naturally have as an artist to be able to respond to what these people need. And that's usually how a really good collaboration can begin. But if that's too much for you, if you're not the kind of person who's going to want to go out and be that proactive, then... The other thing I will tell you is that you have to get involved in local politics and civic activities. You have to make your presence felt all the time. So if, you're, if there's a city council meeting about certain ordinances, et cetera, even though you might not feel like you're an expert in the field or that you are a political person, I highly recommend that you show up to those things because your artistic ability to translate information, to bring ideas together and coalesce them into something new. That's really, really needed, even in those most basic forms of government. And if you can just spare like an hour or so to go to one of those city council meetings, often enough, something will come up and you'll be able, excuse me, you'll be able to have an effect.
1: And are there any great books about the environment, climate or nature that have particularly helped you with your work or that you feel can help creative practitioners or people in creative fields that are looking to explore environmental topics?
0: Yeah, I think there's I think there's there's two books now that I think would be great to read.
1: Um, one is by Hope
0: Jaron, and that is her book called The Story of More. Um, and you can read her first book as well, which is Lab Girl. She's, the way she encounters the world and thinks about the world, I identify with her kind of just everyday citizen sort of person that she is and how she perceives things. And then how she talks about sort of getting projects to move forward as at the same time she's educating you about plant life and about tree life and about things. And and I find it very positive and I find it very inspiring. It just makes me want to jump up out of the couch if I'm reading it and just go do something like right that minute, you know. And there's um, a new book that just came out as well by a coalition and it's called All We Can Save. And this is a collection of essays on climate change, on sustainability from a very kind of hopeful standpoint of all all women authors. And those are two books that I would start with
1: and um are there any artistic projects or environmental topics that you'd love to explore in the future that you haven't done yet (laughs) oh many
0: many 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 (laughs) um you know as this so as this project gets to the phase where as this plant gets built it really has to be done by companies that are used to building multi-million dollar treatment facilities you know i can't go out there and go to the local hardware store and pick up a piece of pipe and go, yeah, we'll fix it. You know? So my role in it is now, You know, it's not as heavy in terms of the plant aspect as it used to be. And that's freed me up to have a little bit of, of time to kind of think about what else I might do in terms of these projects. And so one of those things is that actually, I've been working with Chris Thompson, who's a professor of linguistics. And we both um, have a, a deep love for Japan. He's really super fluent. Um, he teaches linguistics, a Japanese language, and we have been working with different student groups and universities. And we, of course, COVID put it on hold, unfortunately, but maybe this next year we'll be able to do it. We're working with students and citizens and local artists in um, Taro, Japan, which is in the prefecture of Iwate, and that was really heavily hit by the 2011 tsunami. Um, And so after the tsunami, they built a huge seawall to protect the town of Taro. And that seawall is one of the biggest in the world. It's 48 feet tall. It's concrete. And it just blocks off the town from the fishing boats that are returning to the village. And it used to be a really great tradition of a certain kind of welcoming that they would give the fishermen back called the Hamamukai. And so what we want to do and what we've been working on with my students and students from Taro and local citizens, again, is creating a welcoming mural, a hamamukai, on this 48-foot-tall seawall. And we're making paints from the silt that was washed up by the 2011 tsunami to help make this mural. And I think those kinds of projects are what I'd like to see myself doing in the future.
1: Well, hopefully COVID ends soon and that project can happen soon enough. And before we wrap our interview up, is there anything you think I've missed or are there any last words you'd like to say to listeners before we end?
0: I think, you know, I can get away with some things because I'm an artist. It's fun working with scientists and <laughs> because, you know, they're beholden to a lot of different standards that artists don't have to be beholden to, you know. If I come to the studio and I'm like, I want to make a blue circle today, I'm going to make it, you know. And if it turns out crap, you know, whatever. And I, I can just do what I want. And if, you know, I don't really damage other people by doing what I'm doing. And scientists uh, have sometimes a, a much bigger responsibility in that regard. But when I, you know, when I look backwards, back the rather, there's a lot of people I've been thinking about for some time, you know, Goethe, all kind, von Humboldt. There's a lot of people who, when we began the Enlightenment project, when we were in this process as a Western culture of. Making sure that we had a voice for ourselves as citizens, making sure that we looked empirically at things and sought truth, whether it was, you know, we learned that a lot of things weren't true in the end, but we tried our best to basically use our eyes and ears and and learn and observe and make connections. And that power, you know, just came from that dedication to do that. And that led to ideas about how we should form societies, about how we should have equality, and we've never reached anything close to perfect, of course. But I think that one thing that's come out of all this for me is an understanding that we owe it to ourselves to get back to that kind of thing. Particularly in America, we have gone to this model where I think that college students are seen by and large from a cultural standpoint and probably from a corporate standpoint, certainly from a governmental standpoint, They see college students as people who are going to train for a vocation now, that are going to college so that they can become an X or a Y and jump right into corporate America. And I think that's really been damaging to our society as a whole. And I'm pushing as much as possible to get a broader education, to see college as a place where it's about exploration. It's about crossing those ideas, synthesizing new information, which is what it used to be. And that you know, came from, of course, this Enlightenment project, came from this idea that as ordinary citizens, we can look at science and we can read different things and put it together and have ideas. And when you don't require that, when you don't value that, when you don't support that broadly, you end up where we've ended up now, which is in a pretty bad place where a huge portion of our population just believes crazy conspiracy theories doesn't value broadness and diversity doesn't broaden doesn't value rather broad views uh, global views and i think that if if us as artists you know those of us in the studios we we have a real important role to play in that and i think that more than more than a lot of other professions we have this kind of openness and we have this vision of seeing things in a broad and a different way and seeing the specialness in things that other people don't necessarily spot So bringing that voice out of the studio, bringing that voice into government, into your coffee shop talks, into the hardware store, into jumping into conversations of different groups online that maybe you feel like you don't even belong with. I think the more we do that, the more we can lessen this fear of the other, and the more we can get to a place where people don't fear science and they don't fear art, and instead it becomes something that is a place of fascination and a place where people feel like they can converse about it without having to be an expert about it. So I'm doing what I can in my teaching. And when I go give talks and give workshops and things to do this, but I think that there's a tremendous joy in having those cross-discipline conversations. And for me, you know, I work, I'll be at the university and I'll work with someone who has like two PhDs and, you know, is top of the field in Whatever the heck you want to say, it is, and and I feel dumb in the conversation. Like I don't know, you know, I don't I don't have the level of understanding to be like, yeah, that sounds great, you know, whatever. But I love listening to them, and it's fascinating. And 15 minutes later, I'm in a small town that's being decimated because the coal company's moved out, and there's no jobs, and there's a lot of fear in that town. And then I work with those people to try to give them hope about cleaning up a local stream, and try to get them to buy into the fact that an artist and a scientist coming into their town aren't necessarily a threat, that they can all work together. And so I know it can happen and I would encourage everyone to jump on board.
1: Well, John, it's been great to talk to you and have you on this podcast.
0: No, thank you, Toby. Uh, anytime someone makes space for us to have this kind of conversation, it's, it's valuable to me.
1: Thanks for listening to the first episode of Green Canvas. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back in two weeks with the next episode, where we'll be talking to Jay Henry Fair, a photographer whose work photographing oil spills, damaged coastlines, and industrial pollution has received widespread critical acclaim and media attention. In the meantime, if you think this is a podcast a friend of yours will enjoy, we would love for you to share it with them or leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us know what you think and others to find the show. And feel free to get in touch with us anytime at hello at greencanvaspodcast.com. We would love to hear your thoughts on the episode or any recommendations and questions you may have for future guests. Thank you again and I hope you have a great day.